The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by CAPS Managing Editor Kobus Fenstaden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, quickly before we get started, I want to give a huge welcome to all of our new Patreon supporters. Uh, you guys are amazing. One one of the things we've been doing over on Patreon for everybody there is we've been doing these cool introduction videos of all of our new team from Cairo and Francophone Service. Also, Kobus just did his video. And we've got Chris in Cape Town, who's going to be publishing next week as well. So one of the insider perks that everybody gets over on Patreon, plus everybody gets on Friday the weekly digest that we make as well. Also want to give a big welcome to all of our new subscribers around the world this week. It's really exciting to see all of the interest in the work we're doing. And we just want to thank everybody for supporting independent journalism on China Global South and China-Africa relations. So just from the bottom of our hearts, a very big thank you. And finally, just before we get started, a huge shout out to Samuel Richards and his IB Global Politics class over in the high school at Shanghai American School, who was gracious enough to invite me to speak today. And I had a great time speaking with all the juniors there about journalism in China and Africa. So that was a lot of fun. So go Eagles. Okay, Kobus, let's talk tech today. We're going to come back to technology, and we're going to focus on North Africa today in particular. But before we get to North Africa, I want to bring everybody up to speed on the latest initiative that came out of the White House last week. It's called the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. This is a good one if you missed it. So, And I think a lot of people did miss it. It didn't get a lot of press coverage. It's very interesting, especially in the broader context of what the United States is trying to do at the United Nations, vis-a-vis China, also with Russia. And so the Declaration of the Future of the Internet is this document that they pulled together. And let me just read from it, and it'll give you a sense. They didn't say the word China or Russia in the document, but it just reeks of it. So here's what they said. Human rights and fundamental freedoms and the well-being of all individuals are protected and promoted online. Individuals and businesses can trust the safety and the confidentiality of the digital technologies they use. All of their privacy should be protected. Infrastructure is designed to be secure, interoperable, reliable, and sustainable. A lot of that is coded language, again, for the Chinese governance view on the Internet. They talk about Internet sovereignty. And the way that the Chinese frame this is they believe that online and offline, the concept of sovereignty is the same. So that a country has the right to establish rules for internet governance the same way that it does within its own borders. The United States is really pushing hard with this idea of a free and open internet. Once again, here is from the Declaration. Refrain from misusing or abusing the internet or algorithmic tools or techniques for unlawful surveillance, oppression, and repression that do not align with international human rights principles, including developing social scorecards or other mechanisms of domestic social control or pre-crime detention 
and arrest. Again, you didn't have to say the word China, but that is it. The reference to the social scorecard is a reference to the Chinese social credit score. Let's take a second just to listen to what Tim Wu, who is the special assistant to the president for technology and competition policy, what he said on the opening day of this declaration. It goes without saying that the internet has enabled extraordinary benefits uh, for the world and, and for our country, yet it has also created new policy challenges, both domestically and internationally. On the international front, we have seen a trend of rising digital authoritarianism, where some states have acted to repress freedom of expression, censor independent news, interfere with elections, promote disinformation around the world, and deny their citizens other human rights. In response to these alarming trends, the United States today launched the Declaration for the Future of the Internet jointly with more than 60 partners from around the world. The Declaration affirms fundamental principles regarding how countries should comport themselves with respect to the internet and digital space. It commits governments to promoting an open, free, global, interoperable, reliable, and secure internet for the world. So there it was, open and free. Those are the key words you want to listen for when you're contrasting to internet that the Chinese are promoting. And by the way, the Chinese are finding greater traction for their definition of internet sovereignty and their interpretation of that. Tim also mentioned 60 countries on the list. However, I think it's worth noting that numbers can be a little bit misleading here. Let me read you some of the countries that are on the list here, Cobus. Canada. Cyprus, Czech Republic, Dominican Republic, Estonia, Iceland, Israel, Jamaica. <laughs> you, you're getting a pattern here, Kobus? Palau is on the list. Let's see, Serbia. All of these countries together really didn't add up to more than my neighborhood in Los Angeles. I mean, so the fact that there are 60 countries is a little bit misleading in terms of the popularity of this. Who was not on the list? India was not on the list. Neither was Indonesia, Pakistan, China, of course, definitely not on the list. Only three African countries, Senegal, Niger, and Cabo Verde were on the list. You may have seen Kenya was on the list, but in an embarrassing, very embarrassing faux pas, the Kenyans published a statement that said, while we are listed as signatory to the declaration, we wish to state that as a country, we have not gone through our processes and laws for endorsing this declaration. They published that on Twitter, and they said, take us off that list. So, Cobus, it's, it's a little bit perplexing as the timing of this, because we've seen this before. Remember the Blue Dot Network? Remember the Clean Network? And also, when you look at the country list here, it seems to be very similar to the kinds of countries that are signing up with the United States on the UN votes regarding Russia— also, all those letters that the United States and Western countries sponsor to criticize China on, say, Xinjiang or Hong Kong, many of the same signatories are there. So it does seem like there's a pattern here in terms of the U.S. and China kind of showing up on different sides of these, uh, these disputes. I was, I was struck by how few major Global South countries were on the list. And I was also surprised by Senegal's participation. I was actually wondering whether it was a Kenya-style also mistake, simply because the Senegalese recently built, uh, like with, with Chinese companies, built a, a big local data center, and they've been quite vocal in, in support of this Chinese-style kind of internet sovereignty idea. Like in, in, among African countries, Senegal has been among the strongest. 
artist. So I was very surprised that they signed up for this. Um, but you know, in, in general, I think it, it it really it really reflects that that I think the U.S. has a quite weak global, you know, kind of um, you know coalition on this on this issue and it may also reflect you know some kind of ambivalence about about the way about what's not addressed there including for example the role of chinese companies like facebook and whatsapp um not chinese like american companies like facebook and whatsapp um you know and, and their their complicity in in the spreading of of misinformation or their their lack of, of of a crackdown on the spread of misinformation in several countries so it's interesting but i i wonder if it's really going to go anywhere and i think I think there's an issue there too that on, on the credibility front because we know what the Snowden papers told us about how the United States has been quite intrusive in terms of internet governance and so I think a lot of people uh, have a slightly jaundiced view of when the United States talks about the purity of internet democracy and internet freedom and yet doesn't always practice it at home so let's kind of turn our attention now to North Africa in particular, and there was a fantastic new paper that came out that really fits nicely with our discussion about this declaration and internet sovereignty. How Huawei's localization in North Africa delivered mixed returns. It is by Tin Hinan El Kadi, and it was featured on the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website. Tin, by the way, is a PhD candidate in the International Development Department at the London School of Economics, and she's also an associate fellow in the Middle East and North Africa Department at Chatham House in London and co-founder of the Institute for Social Science Research on Algeria. Tin, you are a very busy woman. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the program. Hi, hi, Eric, and hi, Corbis. Thanks a lot for inviting me to the show. I'm very happy to participate to the China Africa podcast. It's great to have you. And again, the timing's perfect with your paper and all of these issues that have been coming up in the news. Let's just first get your take. This isn't the first time that the United States has tried to kind of define itself in opposition to the way that autocratic authoritarian governments like China's, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and a growing number of countries around the world. What's your take, before we get into the details of your paper, on this whole declaration that came out of Washington and the line that seems to be being drawn between more autocratic governments and their management of the internet and the, the West then and what they're trying to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought the the document was very interesting, and it's clearly like a power move to try to like counter China's influence in in the global South, especially. But I think, I mean, the issue again is that uh, I mean, as you noted, there are very little country, like very few countries from the global South who joined the initiative because it's very much at the moment a U.S. and Western c concern, and and the, the concern is very much about the the continuous kind of domination of the U.S. over the cyberspace, right? And, and you know, making the argument that the U.S.'s interest in this field is similar to the interest of African countries or other developing countries is a hard argument to make. And I, I feel the, the, the problem, and this was also the case with the, the Clean Network uh, project and other initiatives from, from the White House before that, is that it, it very much it excludes the interest of developing countries, you know. And um, it, yeah, I'm not surprised to see that, you know, only like three African countries joined the initiative um, and there is also a, a problem of credibility, uh, as you mentioned. So, you know, Edward Snowden did tell us that 
uh, U.S. tech firms were collecting data on, on behalf of the state and spying on citizens all, all across the world. Uh, more recently, there was the, the Pegasus scandal, uh, whereby, um, you know, like the Israeli software w was used to, to collect data on governments and, and citizens uh, across the world as well. So, so the, the, there is legitimate credibility concerns. And I'm not sure these kind of initiatives will really help, um, you know, um, ch change the current dynamics happening on the ground because China is offering a very interesting deal with um, very price competitive infrastructure uh, and like it, it's boosting connectivity across the global south. This is uh, undeniable. And I'm not sure the US is ready to put a similar deal on the table for, for developing countries. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a power move. It's interesting. But as long as it like it excludes the interest of, of countries across the global south, I'm not sure that it, it would get much traction. So in your research, you look at North Africa and one of the one of the narratives, I think, that underlies the this this declaration in in Washington is the assumption that China is trying to export its internet governance model to the rest of the world and particularly to trying to get global south governments to sign on to its internet governance model did you in your work in north africa see any evidence of that well, the Chinese internet model is clearly an attractive model for leaders across developing countries and North Africa in particular. So most regimes across the region are unfortunately autocratic regimes. And, and the Chinese model, which combines economic development uh, with you know, authoritarianism and, and control over populations, is an attractive model for, for, for leaders uh, across the region. So um, Egypt's probably in the region is the most prominent case of like, you know, North African countries mimicking in a way uh, China's uh, governance model. So in 2018, Egypt uh, voted a highly controversial uh, cyber crime law that infringes on citizens' rights in the name of national security. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's very similar to some of uh, China's own laws. Uh, it's estimated that, like, you know, over like the past few years, uh, Cairo blocked access to hundreds of thousands of websites, uh, most of them belonging to, to media organizations. Um, uh, similar things and patterns are, are happening uh, in, in Algeria and most recently also in, in Tunisia with like um, a backlash and like returns and like um, some of the democratic um, progress that happened in the country after the um, the Arab Spring. Uh, so it is clearly an attractive model. The extent to which it's going to be like just copied by, by governments in the region is questionable because obviously, um, you know, the institutional setting is different. State capacity is also different. So the extent to which governments across North Africa would have the capacity to, to reproduce the Chinese internet model uh, is uncertain. Uh, but clearly, it is a, a very uh, attractive model for, for leaders across the region. Yeah, we haven't seen any wholesale reproduction of the Chinese model because, as you said, that would be very difficult to do, if not impossible. But it's almost like a buffet where they're taking bits and pieces of it. So Senegal took some of the data management 
and and really embracing this concept of internet sovereignty. Ethiopia is looking at creating parallel apps the way that WeChat in China is. And then obviously in Nigeria, there was the shutdown of Twitter. That's a technique that Chinese have used as well. So it's not a wholesale importing of the Chinese model, but definitely influences and parts of it. But let's talk about North Africa, Egypt, and uh, and Algeria in particular. Those are autocratic states, so there's a lot of similarities there between the Chinese governance model. But Huawei in particular, they operate in most countries, even up until recently in the United States. So when you talked about the deal that the Chinese bring to a place like Egypt and Algeria, specifically related to Huawei, can you walk us through what are the terms of that deal? What is the offer that's on the table and then contrast that with, say, maybe what Nokia does or Samsung does and why Huawei is more appealing to them. Huawei has made significant inroads in North Africa in recent years. Uh, we don't have very precise estimates, but from talking to, to experts on the ground and policymakers, it seems that like Huawei has built the lion's share of the backbone infrastructure for 3G infrastructure, but also for 4G infrastructure. And the way you know uh, upgrading uh, telecom infrastructure works is that if you've already you know installed most of your uh, your equipment with an IC equipment manufacturer like Huawei, uh, it's more uh, cost effective to just continue with the same uh, manufacturer. So it's very likely that the shift towards 5G would also be done with with Huawei in in these two countries. Um, The the difference, I would say, with with foreign, with Western ICT equipment manufacturers like Nokia or Ericsson and others. So first of all, is obviously the the price competitiveness of of Chinese firms like, like Huawei, but also ZTE which tend to be 30 like 10 to 30% cheaper than their competitors and obviously this is due to their preferential access to to Chinese loans uh, and you know like many of the projects in, in Egypt for instance were backed uh, by you know they were Huawei projects funded by the China Development Bank or the the China Exim Bank and and so these very much uh, facilitates um, you know like the the attribution of contracts to Huawei because Huawei unlike foreign competitors, comes with funding. Um, the other thing is that as, as technological latecomers, uh, both Huawei and ZTE actually have made more efforts to accommodate local development needs. Uh, so we've seen that these firms and, and Huawei, maybe in, in a more prominent way, has very much adjusted the development requirements of these countries. So when Egypt, for instance, issued its um, 2030 ICT vision, uh, Huawei came up with an offer on the table to um, kind of uh, be Egypt's partner in its digital transformation. And so they signed several cooperation deal in terms of developing artificial intelligence uh, capabilities, installment of 5G equipment, data centers, uh, and so on. Um, they've uh, done the same thing in Algeria, where like they're very much portraying themselves as this not just a service provider or an equipment seller, but as a digital transformation partner. And for instance, signed partnership agreements with several universities, uh, both in Egypt and Algeria, to build ICT academies. And so they offer um, cutting edge equipment to uh, departments of telecommunication engineering in in these countries and they're training engineers future telecom engineers into Huawei standards uh so so this is something that uh, was 
definitely um you know obvious doing field work that Huawei was much more present than Western competitors uh, within campuses, but also you know signing partnerships with governments. Uh, I was tracking data on the number of high level meetings between ministers, presidents, and you know the CEOs of Huawei Algeria or like the CEO of Huawei Egypt. And you can see that there are many more um, high-level meetings between, um, you know, Huawei officials, Huawei CEOs, and high-level policymakers in both of these countries. So there is a clear strategy to, like, take more markets. And I think this is um, due to the fact that uh, both Huawei and NZT, to a lesser extent, are technological latecomers and are trying to take over uh, some of these markets that were, you know, already taken long decades ago by West. And competitors. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Bonjour tout le monde, this is Jérôme Emma, host of the Afrique Shin podcast. If you speak French or if you just want to practice your French, then join me every week for the only French language podcast on everything going on with the Chinese in Africa. We are talking about mining, politics, culture, education, you name it, we are covering it all. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and also follow us on Twitter at AfricShin. That's Afrique with a K or online at projetafricshin.com. So in, in your, your paper, you mentioned that um, that there's, and this is similar to South Africa as well, that there's very high levels of youth unemployment um, across North Africa and also high levels of um, of unemployed uh, university graduates. You mentioned 40% of university graduates are, are unemployed. Um, so, you know, it, it makes sense that these training initiatives play into the like worries about unemployment and, and you know, wanting to create more jobs. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and how effective it's been actually been at, at increasing employment. From observations um, on the ground, uh, Huawei is now one of the major employers uh, of uh, young telecommunication graduates in both uh, Egypt and Algeria. And engineers I've spoken to as the you know, golden opportunity because, you know, like good salaries, exposure to cutting edge technologies and lots of expansion projects. But the extent to which it's absorbing all of graduates in telecommunication in these countries is is obviously like it's a rather weak contribution. Um, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of, of graduates every year and still, you know, limited uh, recruitment capacity. So even though it is seen it is clearly, you know, contributing to absorbing some some recent graduates. Uh, there is still a lot of unemployment in the sector, and many people actually mentioned the desire to to go work abroad. So, like the brain drain is is clearly the the first employer in a way. Um, it's uh, you know I've spoken to the, the the lion's share of people I've interviewed have uh, mentioned that they were aiming to go work for tech groups uh, abroad, um, and this is obviously a, a huge developmental concern. The concern about Huawei, and just to be very, very clear, it's not just a U.S. and European concern. Here in Vietnam, they don't use any Huawei equipment in their 5G for concerns out of security. India does not use it. There are a number of Global South countries that have concerns about Huawei uh, technology. So that's, that's a, an important distinction to make. But there are concerns in part because people do not have 
transparency or visibility into the ownership structure, into how data works, into how the company works. There's a lot of questions about the company. When those questions appear in Egypt and Algeria, what do people say? So I've spoken to some policymakers who've realized the importance, who seem to be very much aware of the importance of data and control over data. Uh, but it didn't seem that they had more concern towards uh, Chinese equipment manufacturers than they had towards other firms. So th there is like increasing awareness, I would say, about data sovereignty and control of, of data. And, and you know, like the, the, the problem, I think, for most people I've spoken to, you know, whether it's Google processing the data and collecting it or if it's, you know, Amazon or Facebook or a, a Chinese group, uh, the, the problem is the same, that there is inherent problems of, of data sovereignty. Uh, so in Algeria, for instance, there is at the moment no data center that is standardized on like international standard and is capable of retaining large large volumes so there are efforts now to localize this data but even then obviously because of lacking technological capabilities uh, these countries often have to rely on on you know their chinese partners most of the time and and this is the same uh, thing that recently happened in senegal right with like initiatives to localize data Data, uh, in the country through um, data centers and cloud services provided by Huawei. So obviously data is localized internally, which is better than having the data stored in, in foreign data centers. But there is still a concern over like, you know, who gets to collect and process and, and analyze this data. And obviously it gives a, a huge competitive advantage to, to the firms that are able to, to collect this data. So the concern is not only uh, of like, you know, geopolitical nature, but there is a very significant commercial and economic aspect to it. And um, I, I feel that in, in both the sense I got, you know, talking to Algerian and Egyptian policymakers, that there were efforts to, to localize data. But the problem, and I feel this is a problem that often happens in, um, you know, technological aid commerce in countries that are like trying to catch up with the technological edge is that there is this pressure to you know adopt new technologies to go fast moving in like the latest technology latest generation of technologies without necessarily taking the time to to reflect on what is you know in the long run the best option both for you know geopolitical considerations but also economic ones and if if we you know, if I think these countries are serious about, you know, uh, leveraging the digital revolution to create long term growth and really create quality jobs for the millions of unemployed young people we, we just mentioned across the region. It's it's important to, to really think strategically about, you know, uh, controlling data flows, processing the data locally and increasing uh, local capabilities. So I've spoken to some local firms, actually, in both Egypt and Algeria, who complained that they were systematically marginalized from big infrastructural bids 
in the ICT sector. So sometimes they did say that they had the capacity to do some of the things these big Chinese players were doing. Uh, but that, you know, for like, again, time concerns, policymakers would prefer to go with the big known groups. So they would just pick Huawei because they know that it's going to be done. And, you know, they, they have this, um, they, you know, foreign firms have this credibility that local firms sometimes lack. Uh, but then I, I think there is uh, important policy to be introduced in the sector to very much to encourage homegrown players uh, and reap the economic benefits of, of data produced locally. The paper is very interesting on the issue of, of technology transfer. And, you know, obviously, you know, skills transfer is a huge, is a huge discussion in the China-Africa space. And there's always more kind of, there's always a lot of pressure from African countries for more skills transfer from, from Chinese entities. But technology transfer, you know, kind of is, is a somewhat more tricky issue. Um, and you, you point out that, that Huawei is, you know, transfers or like is, is, is more willing to share certain kinds of technology than others. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that works. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is a question that very much interests me and like to kind of like move beyond like the very US-centric debate on like the digital Silk Road and what it means for the US's continuous hegemony over the internet. I, I think it's important to ask, you know, what does the digital Silk Road or the presence of Chinese tech firms like Huawei mean for developing countries, for structural transformation. This is like the move towards, you know, higher productivity activities, more technology and skill intensive activities. And I feel that, you know, these questions are obviously sidelined because you know, it only interests like African countries and like other developing countries. And, and so what I'm trying to see is like, yeah, the contribution of Huawei in terms of technology transfer, like, is it contributing to like, you know, creating more learning opportunities, more innovation opportunities locally? Um, you know, we know that actually the, the ancient Silk Road over 2,200 years ago uh, did create opportunities of technology transfer. Um, so, you know, the threat network constituted a channel for Chinese innovations, such as like uh, paper making or woodblock printing which enabled, you know, the first time large-scale printing uh, in Europe. And this very much transformed information diffusion in Europe. Also, like, you know, the, during the ancient Silk Road in, in the Arab world, there was a lot of, like, pharmaceutical and medicinal knowledge that came from China and was transferred to countries in, in the Middle East. Um, so I'm wondering how the digital Silk Road is contributing to transferring new type of, of, of knowledge uh, to these countries. And what I've seen so far, and these are like very uh, preliminary findings, is that there is um, localization of seemingly developmental activities in research and development, in manufacturing. Uh, there's, you know, Algeria is host to the first and only Huawei factory in, in Africa. Um, it was done through a joint venture with uh, Afgotech, a local technology firm. Uh, but even though there is this localization of activities, like Huawei, uh, as a profit-oriented venture, has managed to transfer very little cutting-edge technologies. So uh, it's very, you know, superficial. There is a lot of PR, public relation discourse about how Huawei is this 
development partner, that it's helping the transformation towards a knowledge economy and sharing some of its uh, cutting edge technologies with local economies. But then when we analyze uh, Huawei's presence more closely and more critically, we realize that there is very little contribution to technological upgrading in these countries. I think a good example is, is this Algiers Huawei factory. So um, Algeria is a oil exporter. Its economy is heavily uh, dependent on hydrocarbons. And after 2014 and the crash in oil prices, the Algerian government uh, banned a few luxury goods. And it did put mobile devices in the list of luxury goods that it would stop importing. So it forced big mobile manufacturers to localize production. Um, Samsung started by opening a factory and then Huawei joined a few months after in opening its own factory. And I've spoken to some of the Huawei's factory workers. And the thing is that apparently there was very little local integration. Most of the products were were imported and actually uh, it all depended on like semi-knockdown kits um, that, that would then just go through the final stage of the manufacturing process. So there was very little value addition locally. And uh, recently, like a few years ago, like two years ago, the Algerian authorities described the whole activity as like fictitious production and disguised imports, basically. And uh, it stopped, it introduced another ban on the import of uh, semi-knockdown kits and also complete knockdown kits. So production had to stop because it depended on that. And the factory was not able to kind of like integrate more activities uh, fast enough. And and so I, I mean, I just came back from uh, Algeria and the factory is at the moment um, not in service. This had to suspend production. Uh, but even then, I mean, th- there was obviously some transfer of like knowledge in terms of like technological processes and how like the, the factory works and so on. But, you know, as long as you're importing phones that are almost finished, uh, th- there is very little uh, value addition and, and technological upgrading happening on the ground. It was the same thing for the localization of uh, a research and development lab in Cairo. Uh, this came after the announcement of the Egypt 2030 vision. And the vision aimed to really usher in a, a new era in Egypt's transition to a digital economy. And so I think to, 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 to adjust this developmental requirement from the Egyptian state, uh, Huawei decided to launch just two months after uh, its open lab. And the, the aim of the open lab is obviously to, to develop softwares locally in cooperation with like local firms and, and customers and universities and startups. But the, the, there is still, I've spoken to, to some uh, Egyptian engineers working for the lab, and there is a lot of knowledge retention this is, is something that that came up as um, as evident but then it's what we would expect from profit driven ventures right like we don't really expect them to go and share their their cutting edge technologies with developing countries but the, the problem is that local governments have to to be more aware of that and like more strategic in terms of their industrial policies and to be able to you know really leverage the presence of these big technology firms. And that's the point I was just going to make. Who has the burden for here? Because as you pointed out, private companies are not going to voluntarily hand over 
technology and to do they're going to do as little as they possibly can do in order to maximize their profit. And what the Chinese did early on in their development and to some extent still do to this day is they basically make it very clear. If you want to be in this market, you're going to have to hand over technology. You're going to have to partner with us this way, this way, this way, and this way. If you don't want to agree to those terms, you can leave. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It, you don't really see that in developing countries. Now, clearly, most other developing countries don't have the size that China has to use as leverage. Everybody wants a piece of the China market. People aren't always clamoring to get a piece of the Togo market, right? But Egypt and Algeria are big players. Egypt in particular has a lot of leverage. Why don't these countries do more to squeeze the Chinese and force them to do better on the technology transfer and, and, and some of the training? Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, as you rightly mentioned, Eric, like not all countries have China's leverage, right? Like it's, it's a huge market and it could basically like impose um, that like high level of technology transfer to, to foreign firms and it even impose joint ventures, which is arguably one of the most efficient mechanisms for uh, technology transfer. Um, the, the problem with the North African market is that, yeah, like from, from what I've seen and from my analysis, and it's still you know, ongoing research and you know, these are very preliminary findings. There is still like a big space between what these countries, so both Egypt and Algeria, are asking for and what they could actually require. Uh, from these foreign firms. There is like a policy gap. Uh, and the thing is that I feel that it's linked to global competition. I've, I've spoken to a um, a leader and like someone actually managing a, a local, like an engineer, an Egyptian engineer managing a research and development center for uh, on behalf of a, a big technology group in Egypt. And he said that like there is a huge competition to attract uh, high value added activities locally. There's competition with India, with Vietnam, with other countries. And if you tell the, the big tech multinational uh, that you, you need to, to come locally, come localize your activity, but at the same time, I want you to transfer your technology, the, the technology, they, they will just decide to go elsewhere, right? There are like, uh, now there's so much competition over like hosting big tech groups that um, some some big firms and also high level uh, policies had to kind of like reduce their requirements and like reduce the demands uh, in terms of technology transfer and, and local employment and so on, like uh, in even taxation uh, to, to attract these groups. Um, and, and so you know, it reduces the capacity of local firms to, to, to gain from, from these, these tech firms. Another thing is that in, in North Africa is, is a very peculiar thing. It's one of the least economically integrated regions in the world. The, the Maghreb for sure is the, the least economically integrated uh, like block in, in the world. And so you have these segmented markets. Uh, Egypt is 100 million consumers. Algeria is another like 45 million consumers. Uh, you know, if, if you add all North African countries with Tunisia, Morocco and Libya, it, it would be 200 million consumers. And this would obviously add to the leverage of, of these governments to bargain for better uh, developmental deals and to negotiate with these huge tech champions. Uh, but unfortunately, we're seeing that like industrial policy is very much um, thought about in like very 
national context and we haven't moved yet towards more regional um, conceptualizations of industrial policies uh, in this sector, but also in other sectors. And this is a, a big ongoing issue. So we, we've seen over the last the last few years that Huawei is becoming increasingly constrained in, in, the, in the global north. Um, and the this internet declaration that we that we discussed at the beginning of the of the episode is another kind of indication that that's probably gonna not go away you know it doesn't seem like the u.s is, is relaxing about huawei anytime soon in the meanwhile in in africa we've also seen um the the development for example of of huawei initiatives in solar energy and other kinds of other kinds of like non kind of telecom related um fields so i was wondering you know how you see the future of the company like we, which directions are they going in um and particularly also like where you know where is their telecoms business headed mm -hmm. great question well from what i've seen really u.s sanctions on uh, huawei have in many ways and at least in north africa killed the mobile device uh subsector in it so i've uh, visited a few uh huawei selling points uh in in both countries and you, you could have spoken to to local sellers and so on and people stopped buying huawei phones because of all the issues it creates when using you know uh, when using the app store when using yeah there's no android on it so people are yeah, without absolutely. android people are like well it's not as good uh, absolutely so so the clash with uh, with android made like many people stop buying huawei but you still have other like chinese firms that are like uh, prospering uh, in the device uh, subsector um, but, but yeah, Huawei has very much uh, lost um, market shares uh, in this. Uh, however, they, they're gaining lots of space in terms of like Internet of Things objects. So like home devices, uh, iWatches, uh, like smartwatches, sorry, uh, are, are very much like gaining uh, traction uh, locally. But then recently there has been a very important shift towards uh, the development of like cloud services, like artificial intelligence uh, apps. Uh, I visited myself like some uh, startups that were using and developing uh, applications uh, using Huawei technologies uh, to develop um, you know, uh, applications for the Egyptian market. Uh, this obviously like raises questions about like you know the control of data and you know who gains from from this data and who benefits from it. But uh, Huawei is is clearly you know I think increasingly abandoning the mobile device sector. It's unlikely that this uh, factory in Algiers will will reopen actually anytime soon. Um, th this puts like you know the jobs of like thirty thousand uh, like well, it was about um, yeah it was about three hundred workers uh, at like most it, it does put the, their jobs at risk but uh, it, it's very yeah unlikely that the the device uh, subsector will will uh, can continue to to grow um i think that it's very important to look at like yeah recent investments partnerships and development in in data centers cloud computing services and so on and really think critically about uh, what do these investments mean who is benefiting from that and not like unlike previous technological revolutions where you know 
often countries just try to speed up their adoption of new technologies, um, try to like think more um, critically for governments across the region about the implications of some of these investments. And I think it's important to move beyond, you know, sometimes the, the debate over Chinese technology is either completely depoliticized, but like, yeah, good force is cheaper, it's helping connectivity in Africa, and that's a good thing. Or it's overtly politicized where you have like arguments saying that you know it's all about surveillance spying and imposing an authoritarian internet model and i think the truth and reality of china's digital presence in the region uh, you know lies somewhere in between uh, these these two narratives and yeah i think to understand huawei's future and, you know, the, the, just the future of like global digital China, especially in the global south, one needs to, you know, analyze the empirical facts and like talk to some of the people on the front line of, you know, digital China in Africa, like the, the workers, the managers of, of Chinese technology firms, the um, people, the policymakers dealing with Chinese tech firms. And it's also important to, to contrast with what other foreign groups are doing. There is a lot of like China exceptionalism narrative, like this is what China is doing, but it's important to see what other groups are also doing. And sometimes, to be honest, it's it's very similar. Um, it's very similar to, to what the Chinese are doing. And at the end of the day, uh, the Chinese will adjust local contexts and local institutional settings and like cultural preferences and political realities. Uh, and so it's very important to, to understand, you know, China's technological presence as, you know, a force that, you know, adjusts local settings and not as like, you know, a, a set um, one truth fits all, um, you know, a strategy that would be similar in all countries across the, the global south. The article is how Huawei's localization in North Africa delivered mixed returns by Tin Hinan Elkadi. Tin is a PhD candidate in the International Development Department at the London School of Economics and also an associate fellow in the Middle East and North Africa Department at Chatham House. Tin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your research. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes and on the website. But if people want to follow what you're reading and writing in your research adventures, where can they find you? Uh, so I am on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at uh, Tinhinan El, like Tinhinan L. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Tinhinan Alkadi. Okay, we'll put links to both of those links on in the show notes. And once again, Tin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks to both of you. It's my pleasure. Cobras, as I was listening to Tin go through her research, and if you read her paper, she's very clear about this. The narratives are not simple. And when you're in Washington, in Brussels, even in Tokyo to some extent, you hear these binary narratives about Huawei and that it's all this or it's all that. And and again, she's painting this very complex picture. That, in fact, is the, the essence of what we try and do about what the Chinese are doing in Africa and the global south is that the good and the bad sit side by side. And I love the fact that she was bringing up a lot of the problems with what Huawei's doing in North Africa. The fact that there isn't the technology transfer. There's a huge amount of PR. They have an enormous amount of PR that talks about all the wonderful things that Huawei's doing and all the great technology transfers and all the training that's going on and all the local manufacturing. And what we're hearing from Tin is that, you know what? It's worthy of kind of questioning some of that. 
And I think that's great to hear that. But at the same time, the connectivity, the low prices, the ability to execute quickly, the financing packages that come that come with the Huawei equipment are very appealing. And so I understand why so many countries, not only in North Africa, but elsewhere, look to the Huawei, the offer, as she said, the deal that they're putting on the table and say it's better than anything else out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the mix of of being sympathetic to these governments' um, development needs and being sympathetic to or, or amenable to localizing products in order to um, you know to appeal to local local conditions. So, for example, like in a paper, she she raises this very interesting. Um, example of of uh, like Huawei phones that were sold in North Africa that that came with preloaded apps that would, for example, remind um, Muslims to pray at, at specific times, or would be allow them to easily locate a mosque that's close to them, coming preloaded on those phones. It's such an interesting detail. It, it also it echoes a lot of, of of the work that Transient does in their own like very highly successful mobile phone product, like you know, kind of rolled out in Africa. And it's, you know, it's both of those things, the developmental side and the commercial side, um, points in lots of ways to what Western firms uh, are not willing to do, not willing to consider, not interested in, in you know, in, in kind of meeting these these kind of developmental needs, not particularly interested in in catering to these consumers. Um, and that is the part that, that is always left out of the narrative on, you know, kind of on the Western kind of alarm about the, 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 the growth of, of Huawei. And when one then mentions that to western stakeholders there's no answer right it's like well well okay anyway let's move on let's let's talk about the danger you know but you bring up a very interesting point here because the fact that companies like Transin and Huawei and ZTE are innovating and building products for these local markets and the fact that there's these financing packages that are backed by the China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank speaks to the the the, the only thing only way I can say it is just the facts on the ground and I guess the reason why I'm getting a little bit frustrated with the United States and these broad declarations, and whether it's the clean network, the blue dot network, now the declaration of the future of the internet, is just like, at some point, you got to deliver something. And what I don't understand is why the United States, together with its European and Japanese partners, this coalition that they formed, haven't come up with a solution to rival the Chinese offer. That if the Chinese are coming in 20 to 30 percent cheaper, then figure out a way to build a product set that is 20 to 30 percent cheaper. Maybe you're not selling the same product that you are in Paris in Algiers, but you're selling something and you're competitive. Right now, the big problem is, is that Huawei's walking away with so much of the business simply because the Samsung, Nokia, Ericsson alternative to 5G, let's remember the Americans don't even have a 5G solution right now is not competitive price-wise. So all of these bold, big declarations don't really mean anything if there's nothing substantive on the ground. I would rather see the Americans start focusing on building actual, practical solutions to compete with the Chinese and Huawei rather than come up with one of these boneheaded declarations that 55 countries with a population of 1 million people each sign up for. And this is, and we keep doing this over and over again. Let's be very clear here: not a single African country, not one, has signed up for the Clean Network, which was this anti-Huawei initiative. The American offer is a bust. 
and yet they keep coming back to the same themes over and over again. So, Kobus, I come back to you and what you're saying in terms of the innovation, the localization, the adaptation for the local markets by adjusting the artificial intelligence on the cameras for darker skin tones, by creating some of the prayer apps built into the OS for some of the Muslim countries. These are very, very interesting. And then on top of it, of course, this combination of state-backed financing with Huawei is powerful. We may not like it, but that's the market, and we got to find a way to compete with it. There's no crying in baseball, okay? Just stop whining and whinging and get down to brass tacks and compete. That's the frustration that I have. Um, uh, you know, kind of, I'm I'm no industry expert. My my, my but my my feeling or my hunch is that maybe one of the one of the factors involved here is that Western Western governments and Western tech companies are separate entities of course and they um and i think in, in a lot of cases the, the the western tech companies have the, or maybe more specifically in, in lots of ways western governments have limited leverage over western tech companies beyond the kind of the, the the kind of now and then you see the the eu for example trying to take on facebook but there's limited this limited amount of ability or limited like leverage to, to kind of make these companies play ball and particularly on issues of like making things more affordable in in, in certain markets i think you know the the there the difference between the chinese system and the and and the the western systems is, is stuck you know kind of xi jinping cracks down on tech companies left and right and that's not ne- that's not necessarily so great for china's bottom line but you know kind of but but it does it does mean that something like the digital silk road once it's announced you see companies kind of falling in line and then finding these very pragmatic ways of making money in the process you know um so huawei transient and so on did very well by by following these these um these kind of diktats coming from from the party but that was to a certain extent because the markets they were moving into were so badly served by Western competitors. On the other hand, if you now try to make Western competitors try and kind of like fight for those same markets, that 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 implies a level of, of leverage, I think that just doesn't exist. It's, it's very difficult, I think, for the US government to make Facebook do anything. They're not going to force Facebook. They're going to, uh, they're going to create some incentives that Facebook actually wants to. But what incentives would those be? Well, let's look to the fact that the United States is one of the most prolific arms vendors in the world. The United States arm industry, weapons industry, is very different than China's, which is Norinco and these state-owned enterprises. Our, Our arms industry are all private enterprises. And yet, together with the United States, they find a way to get American weapons into the poorest countries in the world with creative financing packages, with creative payment plans, with all sorts of innovation in financing. This is Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon. Okay, these are all private companies. The incentives have been aligned there so that they can do it. There's an entire department in the Pentagon that's only job is to get American weapons into poor countries' hands. We can do it. We've done it with with arms sales. Why can't we do it with technology? We're not forcing them, but what we're doing is we're creating all sorts of of financial incentives in order for companies to start aligning their priorities with that of the U.S. governments, just the same way we've done with weapons. I guess. I mean, you know, kind of there's a there's a, a, a disjunction in the we there, you know, kind of like, um, you know. I'm, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, you know, I mean, the poorest yeah. countries in the world are buying expensive American weapons. How are they doing it? I mean, I mean, I may be naive here. OK, but my understanding is that the United States really sees it in its national interest for countries around the world to be aligned on American weapon platforms. 
okay? Same way that in technology, but for some reason, the private sector in technology is different than the private sector in the arms business. Well, I think it's because it's because the arms industry is so deeply embedded in, you know, it's it's a military industrial complex, right? Kind of so so exactly. the, 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 the arms industry is very deeply embedded in in the military. It's lots of ex-military people work in the arms industry. There's there's a lot of very dense exactly. dense networks of of overlap there. You know, I don't know if if like obviously formally these are these are private companies, but in reality you know they they work very closely together and i think that's that's different that's different for tech sector i think you're 100 percent right but it shows where there's a will there's a way and i just say that there's the policy failing in the united states has to do more with a lack of innovation and creativity and original thinking than it does with the fact that we have the resources again we have an exim bank we've got policy banks we've got all of the resources to do this but we just don't have the creativity and meantime Huawei's walking away with the market I, I see the power of that narrative but I think there might be a few other issues involved there one being this issue of technology transfer you know so so if one reads the work of, of someone like like Jonathan Hillman for example who's he's, he's done a lot of his kind of deep dive research in in the development of of you know the, the the close working relation between the U.S. and the Chinese tech industries in the '90s and the 2000s, um, and how that then soured later. He shows how fundamental technology transfer has been to Chinese success, um, and how how like hardcore they've been about about it. And now, of course, the the Americans are complaining up and down about that, right? Kind of like very very like strident complaints about about forced technology transfer and how terrible it is and IP theft and so on. But the reality is, if someone if like if from a global south perspective. That is the holy grail for the global south. That that trick that that the Chinese pulled to, to get American companies to to hand over IP. That is the thing that the global south, the single thing that the global south would most want. Um, and in that sense, I think the the Chinese example appeals very fundamentally to um, to African countries. It's it's very ironic the way that Tin's research has shown that the, that that the Chinese are now in that American position of not wanting to hand over any kind of IP, and the the Africans are in the position to try and kind of get it out of the Chinese. But the the the, the kind of more fundamental lesson is there's I think there's a there's a real fundamental kind of philosophical difference, which is that African countries are developing and and from that developing perspective that is what they want they want that kind of that that transfer not only skills transfer but actual technology transfer and you know and anyone any kind of like getting this kind of coalition of non-chinese kind of companies on board would mean they would have to build in some kind of some kind of compromise there they would have to sweeten the deal. They would have to sweeten it more than the Chinese are already sweetening it. And no Western company is going to fall for that, among other reasons, because the, the discourse about how they were so badly treated by the Chinese has now become ca canon in, in D.C. So there's, there's very little leverage to make them do anything. Well, if that's the case, then, okay, pack it up and go home, right? Then oh, I guess then all you have left is to is to print out these fancy declarations and there's nothing left to compete with. And maybe that's all they're down to, because it does seem like the tank is dry. You're you're probably right. In fact, I think I know you're right that there are so many limitations that get in the way that they can't compete. And this is why not a single African country 
has taken on the clean network that almost every African country uses Huawei, why Huawei has done such an effective job in Egypt and Algeria and throughout the Middle East, and why despite the brutal American sanctions that have really had a major, major impact on their business, they're pivoting now to energy, to mobile money, to all these other services, and I don't know if there's an an answer to it. It doesn't look like it, is what you're saying. Well, I think the other the other problem is is uh, is an also more fundamental problem that 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 affects a lot of Western initiatives in in the global South, which is that it's sometimes hard to 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 one sometimes has to wonder whether the U.S. really believes what it says itself, right? So you know, kind of reading reading the the internet this internet declaration, it's you know, yeah, like you know, it's it's. We read simply reading the document when it says yes yes totally like free and open internet is very very important like very important for you know for 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 people like for example again you know as part of a persecuted minority being lgbt myself i know that that like part of part of the the most impacted communities like hit by by kind of this kind of internet national kind of internet sovereignty ends up being lgbt communities because they can't get access to to really crucial information and some of their sites get blocked and so on so all of these things are true but at the same time the u.s themselves canceled net neutrality a few years ago so (laughs) you know it's like how seriously are we supposed to take this then yeah that's that is the irony of it let's leave the conversation there it's a fascinating topic one of the things that we're going to start doing more is coverage of North Africa, especially with Nesreen Kamal, who is our editor in Cairo and our new Arabic website. If you speak Arabic, you're going to want to check it out. There's links in the show notes to that. Also, don't forget, we've got uh, Projet Afrique Chine, our French website edited by Jérôme Nima, and he has his fantastic podcast, Afrique Chine, that goes out every week as well. We're trying out some really cool things there. Also, want to give you a little heads up that Coming later this month, we're going to be making a rather big change here at the China Africa Project, and we're going to be transitioning to the China Global South Project. Kobus and I are going to have some couple dedicated shows coming up to walk you through everything that we've got planned, but we're going to be broadening our focus now beyond Africa to also include Asia, South America, the Middle East, the Indian Ocean Basin, and a broader context for what China's doing in the developing world, in part So we want to be able to draw lines among the different regions. We're not going to abandon Africa. Of course, it's still going to be the bulk of what we do, but we also want to widen the discussion as well. So we'll give you uh, some previews of that coming up later. We'll be changing the website and the URLs and things like that. But I did want to give you a heads up for that. So, Kobus, we'll do a couple shows on that in May just to let everybody know what we're doing, why we're doing it. You're going to be writing a few essays to explain the kind of thinking behind it. So uh, we're very excited about it, and we're just putting the final touches on all of that. So we'll be ready in a couple weeks with some big announcements there. Let's leave the show there. If you'd like to follow us online, please do so at China Africa Project, and we would so appreciate you signing up for a subscription at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You get 30 days free to try it out. We've got almost 5,000 articles now on the website and closing in on seven. 100 podcast cobus can you imagine that 700 so it's crazy so we would love for you guys to check it out it's all available to you at chinaafricaproject.com let's leave it there cobus and i will be back again next week thank you so much for listening the discussion continues online head over to facebook.com slash china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show 
For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>